Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. I'm joined today by Mark Carey, who is a data analyst for The Athletic, who's just told me it's Mark Carey as in Mariah, which I'm absolutely thrilled by. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate that. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm really interested to talk to you about the world that you are in right now and that which you've come from. But before we even start that conversation, it'd be wonderful for you to just arrive. Give us a bit of background. Who are you, Mark? Wow. I mean, that is a big question, to be honest. Um, yeah, in terms of my background, my, my original background is in psychology. That was my undergraduate degree. I was at the University of Nottingham there. So I was there for a further year after I, after I finished. I was a, a research assistant there for a year. And then I realized I really you know, enjoy psychology, wanted to take it further. So I did postgraduate study at the University of York. And it was to do with body perception and how body perception is altered with individuals with eating disorders. So I did that for a further three years and really enjoyed my time there. Hugely rewarding, interesting time, obviously studying psychology and gained so many skills, obviously from that transferable skills and almost fast forwarding straight to to what I'm doing now in terms of data analysis. It was, you know, using those skills. So essentially using data and statistical analysis to answer questions. In that case, it was answering questions in psychology, but I have um, a, a real passion for sport. So I was trying to transition more into that using those skills. Um, so for about 18 months, I worked at a charity. It was a children's charity or a sport charity, depending on how you look at it. It was called Youth Sport Trust. So a children's charity, and it was improving the well-being and health of children and young people through the power of sport. And I was working on the research and insight team there, which was, again, hugely rewarding, looking to evaluate the impact of the projects and the programs that we were running there. Um, and always in my my spare time, I enjoy sport and I absolutely love football. I was looking to see how I could apply the skills that I had within my passion and my hobby, obviously football. So there was this growing kind of an underworld of football analytics that was occurring kind of unofficially. There weren't really many official roles in it, but through um, Twitter was was a really big way of actually understanding a lot of people who were sort of in this world and got to speak to more and more people on Twitter, got to see the work that they were doing, went to a few conferences and things like that. And somehow managed to find a way to get a, a professional job within this game. So I was blogging for for quite some time and just sharing it around on Twitter, getting some followers and started my own podcast called the Football Fanalytics Podcast, where we were communicating the idea of this football analytics in this world to the general audience. And those sorts of things kind of got a bit of traction, which was hugely pleasing and managed to get a, uh, a job at The Athletic as a data analyst off the back of that. And here we are. And here we are. There's something really interesting, actually, about how... The world of data analytics and sport, I mean, there is a really strong connection that always has been, hasn't there? But I guess the technology and the social media context of that now has brought that to a wider audience. Yeah, I'd say it's absolutely exploded in the past couple of years, I think. I mean, if you think about it within the game, you know, the use of data and statistics can go back as far as, you know, 100 years that, you know, people would be counting how many passes a player would make or whatever sport you know, you're going to time 100 meter runner and things like that. There's, there's always going to be numbers within it. But in terms of the sheer volume of how much every single action within all sports really is almost quantifiable now, some easier than others, which we can come on to. But I think now the access to it, the availability of it, there's a lot of publicly available data for people to use and to visualize. And the the momentum has just grown and grown and grown and the interest in it has grown exponentially as well. So it's it's really pleasing for me to see so many other people interested in it. I'm quite glad that I managed to get it 
early on in terms of my interest because there's now so many people that I would be competing with otherwise that you know when I got into it it was a smaller pool fortunately but it's massively grown in, in interest and availability and um, what's important about that do you think well I think it's it's a healthy thing that there's so much availability and so many people using it I think one thing that I've always said which we say on our podcast interestingly is that it, it comes with a bit of a duty of care because it's something I, I want to sort of speak about in this podcast of just because you know data is available doesn't mean that it's necessarily always maybe interesting and you can use data and use statistics to however you wish to mold it and shape it and this is what i mean about a duty of care because you can create narratives that don't exist if you just want to twist the data to how you want so i think that it's so pleasing that people are interested in this sort of thing it's, you know data especially within sport but I do feel like, you know, I've worked hard to have a statistical understanding of the, the do's and don'ts maybe of using data. And because it's so freely available, it can be a bit of a wild west at times where people are just using any old data, you know, widely. So um, I do think there's an element of education of how to use data and how to present it as well, which is obviously key because if you present rows and rows of data on a spreadsheet, it means nothing. But if you can shape and mold it into to something insightful, then obviously that's far more interesting. I mean, you're talking about data in sport from a fan point of view in your podcast, aren't you? That connection. From that point of view, how do you go about deciding which data that's available to you is most useful or interesting, thinking about that sense of using it for good rather than evil? How do you do that? that well, that's a very good question. I think being in an industry where there's, as I say, it's growing and there's more and more people you know, releasing stuff, you, you learn from others, you learn from your peers. And I think that whatever information you use it's it's you know it's going to be with with caveats and context and i think this is the thing that we use on the podcast ourselves and this is something that you know i do outside of work with this and with my friend ryan bailey who uh, is a massive football fan as well and this is what we're sort of saying that everything needs to be contextualized so if you were to use data alone and maybe draw conclusions from data alone then you know, you're only really telling half of the story. You know, the eye test, as we say often, especially within football, you can say that a player is maybe highest on a certain metric, but have you seen them play? And this is where football specifically is a really tough one because it's such a fluid game and you can't really draw it down to a single number on anything really. So you need to make sure that it's intertwined with the eye test, make sure that you contextualize it. If you're drawing conclusions from something, how much information have you got in it? Have you based it on a player's single game or a single season or 10 seasons? How reliable is that data to draw the conclusions from? So that's why, again, going back to the podcast I do, that we do that for analytics, the fans perspective, but analytics. And I think that a lot of people sometimes think that you sort of have to have one or the other because of this growing world. It's like, okay, well, you want to only draw conclusions from analytics, like the fan in you who just wants to watch it with their friends things like, I don't want any numbers in this. I just want to watch it for the purity of watching football as though the two shall never meet. And this is where we want to bring the two together to say that in anything in life, business, especially in football is in all sports, just a growing business now to a certain extent that in anything in life, you want to be able to draw the most reliable conclusions. So if you can put the two together, then you're more likely to get the reliability in your conclusions. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm thinking about the importance of the integrity of the source of data, actually, and not just the story that the data tells, but where does it come from? And how do you know that that's reliable? Absolutely true. There's many different data sources, some more popular than others, but you know, I won't go too much into the specifics, but the main sort of data companies who collect this data and provide this are companies like Opta, 
StatsBomb, Scout, amongst others. Um, and there's other data companies who act as sort of consultants who use that information and then work with the clubs as well. So they're the ones who are sort of drawing the insight and then working in collaboration with the clubs. But it's very heavily stress tested, these, these sorts of data companies. And there's more and more artificial intelligence being used. So previously, years ago, it was, and still is to a certain extent, but it would be a, an individual watching the game, clicking every time there's a pass, clicking every time there's a tackle, et cetera, et cetera, to every single minutiae of a, of a a detail within the game that it's becoming more artificial intelligence, more machine learning, so that it's almost done for an automated process, which is then sort of checked and cross-referenced by a human. So you're then able to do it at scale. So where you could previously take, I don't know, however many minutes to do one game, you could do hundreds of games within a matter of minutes across you know, a wider number of leagues. And then again, you're able to draw more insight from it. I wonder if there's more demand for this kind of data-driven insight piece now because of how widely it's available through things like you talked about Twitter when you were first starting to I guess gather some momentum yourself in this area do you think that that sort of further exposure to this through social media is having a big impact on this not just for football maybe but side of that anyway our appetite for data and data-led insights I think so. I definitely think so from certainly from my Twitter, but then Twitter's always a bit of a, an echo chamber, isn't it? Because you only follow the people that you wish to follow. But I think so. I think it, it does reflect the growing world of data and the use of it and the people's sort of consumption of it. And I think, you know, you think about, unfortunately, the past couple of years with everything that's gone on in a COVID world, I think people are becoming more, I was going to say literate, maybe numerate in being able to actually, you know, appreciate data. And it was the thing that we saw most often in those daily briefings and the slides that were used there. And it did make me look at it with a critical eye, I'd say, because some of those graphs and charts for me weren't most user-friendly and they could have been presented in, in a clearer way for the lay audience, which is, again, key to my role as a data analyst. I'll produce a lot of visualizations to make sure that it could be understood by people who have appreciation for analytics or people who don't. And that was something which I remember I learned when I first started the role was that you need to be able to explain this as though it's to your parents who aren't really that bothered about what you're doing. You can sort of have that as a gauge of, of just how much you can explain something. But yeah, I definitely do think that it's it's reflective of the wider world being, you know, appreciative of data. And I just think we are yeah, living in a, a more of a data world than we ever have done before. So that's certainly the case at the moment. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I get the sense, Mark, that there's more to sport in particular than just the data that sits behind it as well. The sense that it's an art form as well as it being something scientific that small improvements can be made in. I wonder what you think about that and how that impacts on your role. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, when I'm referring to a football here, you can yeah, apply it to the whole of sport. And there's differences within each sport. So, so the age-old narrative is that American sports are ahead of, of UK sports in terms of that use of analytics and the acceptance of analytics. So things like basketball and, and baseball. Granted, baseball has more of a closed skill, so you're more able to, you know, batter in a bowler, essentially. You're more able to quantify certain outputs. And football, it does have the sort of the art form where it's far more fluid. So, you know, two teams can play for an hour and a half, basically, and score no goals and they'll shake hands at the end and it's done. How do you draw too much insight from that? Who was the better team? Well, if you looked at it based on goals, you wouldn't know the answer. So you need to dig a little deeper and things like that. So, uh, you know, on the art side of things as well, I want to draw insight from the data, but not, as I say, drawing too many conclusions solely on the data is that you could have a situation where 
A player moves to England, to the Premier League, to play football, and they could have posted the best statistics in the world you know, the season before. So great, we've got, using the data, we've got a really clear idea that this player is going to do really well. But not necessarily talking about the art of football here, but just the human element of it is that they could come to the UK. They might speak no English. They might have a newborn baby. They might have trouble moving to a new house. They might have to stay in a hotel for a matter of months. And, you know, all these things that, that conspire against them, maybe, well, they're then going to affect their statistics. So the conclusions that you drew for last season are not going to be the case the following season. So you have to appreciate that in sport, but in anything, you know, drawing conclusions in a wider business sense that you have to take in that full context. And we are dealing ultimately with sport, with humans. This isn't just a bunch of robots playing against each other, in which case we would have completed football and the conclusions years ago. So I think there's definitely that element to it. I remember bookshelves and bookshelves of bright yellow wisdom almanacs years ago in the cricket statistics and things like that. I'm wondering if that was the beginning of all of this sort of data collection, those great big annual statistics around all of that stuff that was happening. Yeah. And there was the same in football that I think my dad's had similar books for football as well of just really going through the archives and things like that. And this is what I mean. There's, well, it's a really good point, actually. So it's the use of data in a lot of sports has been available for a long, long time. And I think this is where you can separate data from analytics. So the, the statistics in those books is there to see, but analytics, I think, is using more advanced modeling machine learning potentially and drawing insights that are more talking about the probability of something happening in the future or likelihood. So one of the key ones, and I won't go too deep into it, but one of the main metrics in football analytics is expected goals. You could count essentially how many shots a team has had, and you could do that on on your hands basically, but expected goals is looking at the probability of that shot actually resulting in a goal. And that's using millions of previous shots from similar locations and a similar context to then look at that likelihood and probability in the future that that shot will lead to a goal. So I think this is probably a language thing, but it's separating data and statistics from analytics. And I think analytics is far more powerful, far more predictive, far more advanced. And that I think is the thing in football, but probably more broadly across sport that has been more popular in recent years. Whereas, as you say, the data could probably have gone back for decades. I get a sense of it needing some interpretation to bring the insights out of it, that that's really the role of the data analyst. Would that be a reasonable description of that sort of role? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. And it's something, again, which I've seen in videos, you know, myself when I was looking to get into this industry, that there's a really good analogy, basically, that someone said that data or a statistic alone is a piece of raw material. Think of it as a massive block of wood. Okay, it's kind of useless if you think about it. But what you can do is shape that block of wood into a chair or into a table and then start to actually make it into something that makes a bit more sense. I think the same sort of thing with data and statistics that you can shape it to actually contextualize it and make it into something that's actually insightful. So I could say, for example, really rudimentary on the top of my head, that a player has taken 23 shots this season. Be like, okay, well, all right, that's a statistic. Well, it's not useful. <laughs> but how you can make it useful is to say that that's actually more than anyone else in their team, or that's more than anyone else for their position across the whole season. Now you're starting to ground it and actually shape it a little bit. And then you can maybe visualize it, which is key to my role. And then you could graph it, it maybe a simple bar chart to look at the top 10 that season to know that, okay, that player's at the top, but you know, here are the other nine within the top 10, how far away are they from each other? You can then start to draw some insight, draw some conclusions and start to create a bit of a narrative 
from that. But I think to answer your question, that's my role to basically make that raw material into a table or a chair. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like conversation starters. I wonder if there's something in that that is also really influential in emergence of some areas of sport that perhaps have been less publicised, less popular in the general scheme of things in the past that now seem to be coming to an emergence. I'm thinking in particular about the women's football that is very, very current. The TV audiences, for example, for that now are huge in comparison to what they've been before. What part has data, do you think, had on influencing the story of that and bringing it to the public attention? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, first and foremost, the Women's Euros has been a fantastic success, hasn't it? You know, this summer, I went to a game last week. It was the Austria Women Against Germany game. And it was such a great atmosphere, really, really enjoyable. And I think that, yeah, the attendances for that alone have been huge and such a great success. So why that might be and how data might have influenced it, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that it's a wider point actually on the use of data in women's football and how the exposure of the men's game compared to the women's game, the funding of the men's game to the women's game is absolutely sort of miles off it, basically completely separate in terms of how much money is pumped into it. And that's also, I think, reflected in the data and the availability of data in the women's game. It's really quite difficult. And within my role, we were looking to do a preview for basically the best players coming into the women's Euros. And to cut a very long story short, we weren't able to do it because we didn't have access to enough of the data to be able to do that preview because it was either going to cost us an extortionate amount, which wasn't budgeted, you know, in our work. Whereas if we'd have done it for the men's game, it would have been far more easier. And it just sort of goes to show that we had it scheduled to do that. It wouldn't have been a problem in our heads. But when we actually came to do it, we realised it, it certainly wasn't possible. So I think it just shows that difference between the men's and the women's game. But hopefully, even as I say, from this women's Euros and the success from it, the exposure from it, the audience, you know, attendances, that will hopefully, that gap will hopefully, you know, get smaller. Going back to your earlier exploration of data through your psychology research and thinking about that, and I guess that's a field where you're able to look at lots of different studies, aren't you? Not ones that you've commissioned yourself, ones which you can interpret in an entirely different way. Was that your experience of that? that you were able to look at data analysis from previously commissioned studies, which could tell you an entirely different story to those that had been told before. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a completely different world, really, in terms of academic research, a hugely interesting one. So many different methodologies to be able to interpret data and, and perform the research. So, I mean, psychology is the study of human behavior. So it's similarly very complex to actually boil down to a number. And of course, with, as I said, my research was with an eating disorder, so a hugely complex disorder, which is something that can be looked at from a quantitative perspective, i.e. numbers and a qualitative perspective, obviously, you know, through speaking and through maybe interviews, if we're going to talk about it from a research methodology perspective. So it needs to kind of be multifaceted. So it was really interesting to come at it from both angles and see that it wasn't just something that we could boil down to a number. So for example, looking at it from both ends of the spectrum, I did a study that was, um, uh, we tried to do it from a quantitative perspective, but looking at questionnaires 
and how the current questionnaire that was used as a proxy of a a diagnosis for eating disorders or eating disorder vulnerability, Mm -hmm. which is obviously using words, because questionnaires, were not really reflective of the broad spectrum of eating disorders. It was geared more towards anorexia and anorexic traits rather than the broad spectrum of things like binge eating disorder and bulimia. So that was kind of coming from one angle, but then we tried to do it from a very, very quantitative perspective. So I did a brain imaging study. This was in individuals, the non-clinical population, but looked to find areas of the brain that lit up essentially when it was responding to bodies from different perspectives and different sizes and to see how that that might have changed depending on the viewpoint that they saw different bodies. So we went from a really low level visual perspective to try and quantify it, but then more of a broader overarching perspective. It was really, really interesting to do that. And, you know, I don't regret it at all. I really loved my whole time there doing my PhD, but it was just a slightly different change of direction for something else that I really enjoy. But as I said at the start, it's so transferable. So where previously I was using data and statistics to answer questions in psychology, I'm doing the same thing now, but I'm just using data and statistics to answer questions in football. So the transferable skills that I got there, I would absolutely not be here without them. Yeah, I see that. I'm wondering if there's other transferences as well. I wonder about cultural responses, both in your previous work, but also in the world of football and the world of sport. I wonder if you see different stories that the data tells you through even just different countries, different cultural sets. What happens there? It's a really, really interesting question. And it's one that is a very difficult one to answer. I've tried a couple of times to answer it. I mean, well, from the research perspective of the eating disorders and the research side of it there, absolutely agree. Cultural differences, it's such a heterogeneous disorder, so very varied, essentially, depending on yeah, the culture, even obviously sex differences, gender differences, massively different there. So again, it goes to the conclusion I feel from this whole podcast is that it's really difficult to have a single conclusion and when you're drawing inferences and conclusions you have to contextualize it so heavily and it almost looks like you're sitting on the fence with those conclusions because people obviously want a bit of a black and white answer but more often than not the answer is it's a very gray area Um, and that's okay because you're constantly moving things forward i think that's certainly what i look to do with my research for my phd and on the football side of things we're actually working on a piece at the moment that looks to quantify that difference if we can of yeah, the difference in, let's say, goal scoring between different leagues. So if a player from Portugal scores 20 goals in Portugal, then comes to England into the Premier League, how much is that worth in the Premier League? It's it's not like for like because you've got a difference in the strength of those leagues. So you need to alter that. So what is 20 goals in Portugal might be about 12 or 13 in England. And that's just for you know the obvious metric of, of goals. So you can apply it to so many different things there, but it's absolutely true that you have to contextualize it and that's contextualizing it with the numbers then as i say you've got to contextualize it with the fact that that player might be a portuguese player who's got to speak english for the first time and get settled so like i said before it's just so multifaceted and tricky but somehow i still managed to come to work and try and work it out each day (laughs) i'm still looking for that black and white answer i love that i wonder if as human beings our search for that it's this or it's this is the thing that drives us to keep moving forward. Actually, that lack of acceptance that it could be anything. And so, you know, let's just let's just deal with that. I wonder if it's that movement towards needing to know that actually does drive the knowledge further. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I frustrate my friends quite a lot because I've sort of accepted that in a lot of things, we, we're never really going to get it exactly right. And I think that You're right, again, from my studying of psychology, we are all real simple beings, really. We want to look for simplicity in our life. We 
have heuristics, which is trying to obviously make sense of the world, trying to put things in boxes. That's why people have stereotypes and that's why people have biases because it just sort of shortcuts to what we want to, to know or we think we know quickly. And I frustrate my friends because I'm like, well, we don't really know that. You just, you just try to make a quick conclusion there from something, from very little information. So I'm not going to really say anything either way there because I, until I would, you know, maybe run the numbers or maybe actually dig into it a little bit more, I don't really know. And again, that maybe makes it look like I'm sitting on the fence or actually withholding an opinion or anything like that. But I just think we can never really have too much of a strong opinion unless we know the full information. And it's probably a blessing and a curse of the industry that I'm in. But, you know, just even simple things like you have a conversation with someone and maybe they, they're a little bit rude to you or whatever, but some people might get annoyed at that and say that that person is rude. I think, no, we don't know what exactly what the full story was there. So I know it's sort of taking it to a trivial example, but I do think that people do want to have conclusions from everyday life and that's completely normal. And I think that from my work, I've, I've always thought that it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah. I'm thinking about how actually sometimes in identifying bias and thinking about using data to take that out of it, we're somehow still doing what you've just described, creating boxes and, and putting people in it. We're just using boxes now for bias instead of something else. I got that from somebody. I want to call her Lisa Feldman Barrett because that's what I was listening to the other day. She talks about that sense, doesn't she, of unpacking the stories that we tell ourselves about what people are in terms of things like personality traits and those kind of things. We're just now saying, actually, that's a bias against this. It's just moving from one box to another. It's fascinating. Yeah, I find it so interesting. And this is the conversations that I like to have. And that's maybe the psychologist in me, or maybe just the person who is interested in looking at things from a little bit of a, a deeper perspective. It's always something that I say, and people ask me, is it your personality type that's actually led you into the psychology side of things? Or is it as a part of your training in psychology that's made me think about things in this way? And I'm not entirely sure of that, that order, but similarly, I find this stuff really interesting. Yeah, I can see that. As we come to the end of our conversation today, I wonder what you might say to anybody listening who is wondering how all of this stuff that we've been talking about wraps into the world of how they approach their role in leadership. What would you say to somebody about using data in that way of contributing to decisions rather than solely making decisions using it? What would you say to them in terms of advice as they do that? Yeah, I think we've we've covered it quite well in, in you know in this episode in terms of just how much as you say it's a contributing factor. It's a tool that you can use alongside all of the other traits that fit in and lead to leadership, but never should be uh, I think a crutch. If you were to compare the two, I don't think it's something that you could really or should really lean on too much, unless there's obvious, clear reasons why to why you should do that. But yeah, using it more more generally as as part of your wider wider conclusions that you draw and you know the wider leadership that that you make. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That has been such an interesting conversation. Genuinely could carry this on for decades, but probably not what you want to do. Thank you again for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I've loved it. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Cornell. It was produced and edited for Podo. Mm-hmm.